Blog Talk Radio. The Purple Angel. Oh, Purple Angel. Purple Angel. We've got a special show today. Normally we're on Tuesdays, um, but we've got uh, just a fantastic show lined up uh, for us today. And I'm I'm hoping um, that you will all share this information with all of your your peers. Um, I I think you're going to find it very very informative to say the least um, with this. Um, today we are going to be talking with uh, Dr. Ashford with Memtrex and also Curtis uh, Ashford with Memtrex, which is a a new measurement system for for memory, and it really helps with screening people. And then the second half of the show, we are going to have on Greg O'Brien, who is a veteran journalist who has been diagnosed with dementia, and uh, Dr. Molly uh, Purdue will be with us as well. So um, I think I think both uh, both halves of the show uh, you will find very informative, to say the least. For those of you that are new to Alzheimer's Speaks, let us give you a little bit of background of, of who we are and why we do what we do. Uh, my mom dealt with dementia for 30 years. She started in her mid-50s and just recently passed away at the age of 86. So more than half of my life has been dealing with this disease. And I call myself an advocate on steroids uh, to try to make change. Uh, I think we have to get very innovative. I think we have to share information and knowledge around the world if we're going to put a dent in this disease and help people live fully. So I created Alzheimer's Speaks as an advocacy-based company, which provides multiple platforms to shift our dementia care culture from crisis to comfort around the world. And we truly believe that by joining forces and sharing knowledge and just having these everyday conversations like we do here on Alzheimer's Speaks Radio, that we're going to be able to remove the stigmas attached to memory loss and help people living with the disease live with purpose as well as those who are caring for them. At our core, we believe collaboratively we can win this battle. And I know collaboration is working in its highest power because we were recognized by Dr. Oz and ShareCare as the number one influencer online for Alzheimer's disease. And let me tell you, we did not do that alone. Um, Alzheimer's Speaks is a one-woman show. It's me, Lori LeBay. Um, and it's your likes, your clicks, your tweets that have put the power behind us in terms of sharing information. So if you haven't done so already, I would encourage you to um, go ahead and like the show and 
share it with, you know, if you've got a Twitter account, a Facebook, your Google friends, um, an email listserv, whatever it is, because you never know who in your community is dealing with this disease in silence. You'd be shocked. But the more information that we put out there, the easier it will make it for people to reach out when the time is right for them. So let me go ahead and um, give a shout-out to a few organizations that I just think are so critically important, and then I'll introduce our, our guests for our first segment. The Purple Angel Project, if you are not familiar with that, I suggest you go to alzheimerspeaks.com and then go to our About tab and click on the Purple Angel Project. This is a, the new global symbol for dementia. It is used around the world. Everyone can use it. Um, it's very, very simple. It was created by Norms McNamara over in the UK who has dementia and Jane Moore and it has spread like wildfire. We want this to be as well known, as well accepted and embraced as the pink ribbon is for breast cancer and we know we are making great strides on that but we'd love for you to join us. So go to alzheimerspeaks.com again go to the about page and then you will see the Purple Angel Project. If you're looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, I recommend you go to Alzheimer's Disease International. Not only there will you find the closest association to you because they're the association of all the Alzheimer's associations, but you will get global information in terms of what is happening in our world with dementia. If you are um, interested in investigating home health, um, HealthStar is a great company. Um, they're, now, they're not national, but they are in various states, and I won't even list what they are, but um, HealthStar is doing some remarkable work with their families who are dealing with dementia, and they have been certified as an Alzheimer's whisperer. Uh, the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation, I also, that's kind of uh, dear to my heart, they they take a holistic approach. So if you're you're not into pills and you're looking for alternatives of maybe how to prevent or reduce your risk, um, not only uh, will they show you different ways through uh, diet and food and exercise and meditation, um, but they have some great educational courses that they offer as well. And then many people are dealing with specific types of dementia. And there's, you know, probably around 100 of them. I don't think we know for sure, but we'll ask Dr. Ashford. He probably has a better idea. I've heard from 70 to 120 different types of dementia. And so one of some of the most um, frequent dementias that we hear about most common are Lewy body and frontal temporal lobe or people dealing with aphasia. And, and all three of these have national organizations that can give you a little bit more comfort um, and resources regarding the particulars for those dementias. Uh, Alzheimer's Music Connect is also a wonderful resource for people just looking to be able to um, calm themselves as care partners as well as those with dementia and engage. And they have some scientific um, method behind behind their music and it's very powerful. They're going to be launching a holiday CD that is absolutely gorgeous and I'll, I'll let you know more information as soon as I get that. And then Puzzle With Me and Jiminy Wicket are also a couple of 
of um, great resources, again, for social engagement. So with no further ado, let me go ahead and introduce our first guest here. Dr. Ashford graduated from the University of California, um, Berkeley, and he completed his MD and his PhD degrees. He His um, PhD dissertation was a finalist for the Lindsay Prize for the Best Behavioral Neuroscience for the Society of Neuroscience in 84. And he's going to be telling us some fascinating information, very exciting news that just rolled off today uh, once I introduce him. His original observations have laid the foundation for understanding how Alzheimer's disease affects the neurons in the brain. And in 81, he published the first double-blind study of a drug to treat Alzheimer's disease, which currently is the most widely prescribed class of drug for this condition. In 85, he proposed a neuroplasticity hypothesis of Alzheimer's disease based on the knowledge established with his PhD dissertation. And this theory is a leading model for understanding the pathology um, of Alzheimer's disease. And again, he's going to be giving us some great information um, regarding that, some really exciting news. He's also the chair of the Memory Screening Advisory Board for the Alzheimer's Foundation of America, which coordinates the AFA National Memory Screening Initiative, um, which is absolutely fabulous. In fact, um, HealthStar, um, the home healthcare company I was talking about um, earlier, they used their memory screening tool um, out at our state fair, and they screened over 2,200 people, and they engaged over 14,000 in just really great conversation, um, and it wasn't fear based. It was so powerful. So Dr. Ashford has now developed, and um, this is why we're going to have this conversation today, a computerized memory measurement system to screen for memory problems, dementia, and Alzheimer's disease called MemTrax. And the memory test um, is really interesting. It's engaging. It's challenging. And it has potential to um, efficiently screen for the earliest signs of Alzheimer's disease. And it's it's inexpensive, and it's a practical test um, to be had. So welcome, Dr. Ashford. How are you today? Oh, very well, and very excited, as you mentioned. Um, so I, had, I woke up this morning to my radio, which was telling me that the Nobel Prize for Physiology and Medicine was just awarded based on uh, studies of the brain. And uh, one of the things they mentioned was that a John O'Keefe from, from uh Britain was uh, one of the two groups that won it, and uh, the reason I'm interested in this so much is that I actually uh, referenced his work in my PhD dissertation in 1984, and was was actually very much affected by this. Um, his uh, Nobel Prize, that was just announced today, was for describing cells in an area of the brain called the hippocampus. Mm-hmm. Um, Sometimes people get a little lost when you use the word hippocampus. It basically means seahorse. It's a little structure in the middle of the brain that is absolutely essential for forming new memories. And uh, Dr. O'Keefe was able to look at this, uh, the cells in this area of the brain in rats, which have a very big hippocampus. And the cells of the brain 
uh, are in this area of the brain, the hippocampus, are able to basically code for particular locations. So as they run around a maze in different areas, different er different cells in the hippocampus learn particular locations. So the hippocampus is very much involved in learning new information. And the thing is, in Alzheimer's disease, one of the areas of the brain most devastated by Alzheimer's disease is the hippocampus. And the Nobel Prize Committee uh, recognized his work uh, from the 1960s and said that it had direct implications for Alzheimer's disease. And not only that, I believe it, um, because this was, it was his idea that there will be cells that would be related to learning new information in the hippocampus, um, and the hippocampus being affected by Alzheimer's disease. It led me, uh, with, with work I'd done on my dissertation, to, in 1985, proposing that it was the capacity of the brain to form new memories that it was specifically attacked by the Alzheimer's disease process. So uh, very much involved in memory, and of course that has led me through many different parts of my career studying Alzheimer's disease, but uh, has led us now to say that if we really want to test for somebody to see if they have a specific memory problem, you have to do it in a, in a specific way where you can give the brain information and then see if the brain is able to remember that information. And that's where we've developed this Memtrax test, M-E-M-T-R-A-X.com. And with this test, we're able to see if a person has any signs of memory difficulties, which are potentially um, indicative of, of many things. Alzheimer's disease would just be one thing, but there certainly any particular memory problem would be, this, this test is very sensitive to it. But, but Alzheimer's disease, of course, is the thing that we're very interested in. Okay, great. Before we get into um, our, our line of questioning, I also want to introduce uh, Curtis Ashford, um, who I believe is your son, and he developed an interest in cognitive testing as an undergraduate at California State University, um, where he graduated in 2011. And in the last three years, he has worked closely to develop the simple screening activity um, to assess changes in memory using social media and computer and internet technology to inform and promote um, frequent and consistent memory assessments. Uh, Curtis is passionate about promoting early detection <clears throat> of memory changes that may be indicative of onset of Alzheimer's or the presence of other causes of cognitive disorders. He's currently leading MemTrack um, in developing the cognitive assessment software with a sensitivity to evaluate the earliest of onset of memory changes and to promote early intervention before cognitive development um, disabilities develop. So welcome, Curtis. How are you today? Hi, Lori. Thank you so much for having us on today. Well, I'm I'm just excited. Um, you know, I've heard about your company for about a year now, and um, one of the things I want to I want to ask um, both of you, and I'll start with uh, with uh, Curtis here is, um, have you been touched personally in your in your family or a close friend with dementia? Our our audience always likes to hear if there's a if there's uh, yeah. a personal. My case. grandfather actually, my grandpa John had it um, pretty bad. I was quite young, probably about 14, 15, as he started to deteriorate, but I would hang out with him, and it was really sad because each time you'd go back, you'd, you know, forget a little bit more about either you or my my dad or 
could just forget somebody's name and you could definitely pick up on it each time and you'd know something was going on. Mm-hmm. Yep. And um, Dr. Ashford, how about you? Um, it was was that your father that had a dementia, or or was that uh, or was that the other side? No, that was my father. But um, it was my my uh, my uh, interest in this really came from a different direction. I was um, when I was at Berkeley, and I, I graduated from my from there, but I did my MD and PhD at UCLA. But of course, at Berkeley, things were a little radical back in the 1960s, if you might recall. Yep. <laughs> and um, the uh, my interest, apart from all the politics, was that uh, I was interested in trying to live forever. So I was very interested in the aging process and how to stop it. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was what I studied. And um, as I as I studied it more and more, I I began to to look at the brain as the sort of the master organ that controlled everything. And I figured if I'm really going to understand the aging process, I'll have to understand how the brain controls aging. So that's where I developed an interest in this. And as it came, as things, time went along, I realized that I was not going to be able to stop the aging process. I just had to live the best life I could. But um, I, I was still interested in aging mechanisms. And it turned out that as I sort of looked at the population and the baby boomers, which I was a member of, uh, getting older, it looked like the, the most that we could do a lot of things to prevent dying. We could not smoke cigarettes. We could live healthier lives and wear our seat belts and escape a lot of the problems that would cause you to die. But um, it turned out, as I as I sort of went and studied things more and more, that the most serious problem I saw looking forward was Alzheimer's disease. And as the baby boomers age and take better care of themselves and live longer and longer, the problem of Alzheimer's disease is just going to be the most devastating problem of this century. And so I got interested in it from that standpoint. And I, so in 1978, I finished some different brain mechanisms, but I, I was the first chief resident on the geriatric psychiatry unit at UCLA and started seeing about, I would say, something like two out of every five of the patients that we admitted couldn't remember something. I, I'd ask them to remember, say, five words or something. They'd come back a few minutes later and say, well, what were those words I remember? And obviously, anybody could remember those simple five words I'd given them, and so, like two out of every five people wouldn't remember that I'd asked them to remember five words. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, wait a minute, this does not make sense. And so I got very interested in the question. I'd been interested in memory already. And so I started trying to say, well, what is the problem? And my mentor at that time was Lissy Jarvik, who, was, who had been studying Alzheimer's disease already, 1978. And um, we started thinking, well, these... Obviously, Alzheimer's disease is a heck of a lot more common than anybody realizes, and we better start getting interested in figuring out what to do about it. And mm-hmm. um, so that was uh, sort of studying some of the preliminary things that just had come out that were very specific mechanisms in the brain that had been affected by Alzheimer's disease that involved a chemical called acetylcholine. So we figured out a way of trying to increase the amount of acetylcholine in the brain. That led us to a drug called physostigmine, which was sort of a, is a drug that's just similar to, but not quite long enough acting to be used clinically, but um, it's very similar to, to drugs like Aricept that are used nowadays, or Volantamine, or Rivastigmine. But Rivastigmine is just a you know, very closely related to Pfizer So we did that work in 1970, 1979, published it in 1981. So that was the idea of uh, trying to treat the patients with the disease. Uh, and it's, uh, there was a very close similarity to 
using a drug like this and a drug uh, like the ones that are used for treating Parkinson's disease. But what I quickly realized is that these drugs don't stop the disease. They may just help it a little bit, but they don't stop it. And uh, we really need to understand the disease so we can really stop the disease process somehow completely. And I still believe that that's possible. And if we would go down the right research direction, I believe we can eliminate Alzheimer's disease entirely. But it's going to take some understanding of what the process is. And that's where I then went and developed this theory of neuroplasticity and how neuroplasticity is what's attacked by the brain. And um, there was just a paper that came out in the journal called Aging, September 2014, just this month, by one of my friends, Dale Bredesen, who runs the Buck Center here in Northern California. And he has a paper titled Reversal of Cognitive Decline, a Novel Therapeutic Program. And he's using a theory that, I've, that I had developed back in 2002 about um, if you understand the exact mechanisms by which Alzheimer's is attacking the brain, you can change many different um, things in your diet and in your environment that uh, may actually stop this process entirely, which is really what we want to do. We don't want people to have their Alzheimer's treated. We want to have it prevented. Correct. So Correct. I'm, I'm happy to talk to you much more about that. Okay. Well, that that is wonderful. I know that uh, the Alzheimer's Disease International just came out with a big report about um, reducing the risk. But they, you know, I know Mark Wartman, the executive director, was very specific in saying this isn't a guarantee. You know, all of these things that they're mentioning are just good for our bodies as a whole. Um, um, but it sure as heck can't can't hurt. Um, you know, to be to be um, more proactive you know, um, in terms of, of moving things forward. Can you tell us what are some of the, the serious problems that we really need to look for if we're, if we're concerned about dementia? What are some of the, the telltale signs? Well, there's, I, there's been some misunderstanding about the, the word signs in, in terms of medicine because the Alzheimer's Association has their 10 warning signs. And mm -hmm. the thing is, signs are things that a doctor sees, and symptoms are things that patients report, or family members mm -hmm. report in this case. And it's really the symptoms that we're worried about uh, that might lead you to see a doctor. Um, the biggest factor that leads you to see a doctor is pain. And the Alzheimer's patients, if anything, have less pain. They seem to have less arthritis, so they don't necessarily go to see their doctors very much. And it's not until frequently that somebody actually drags them in to see a doctor that they even get properly assessed. Um, a typical story I tell is that um, the patients just have usually minimal awareness that their memory is failing. There seems to be some point very early on where there is some subjective awareness of a person having a little bit of memory difficulty, but by and large, that's not, that is not really a significant factor. Um, what happens usually is that other people start noticing that a person is having difficulty with their memory. And even doctors, so a patient goes in to see a doctor and the doctor says, okay, um, how are you doing, Mr. Jones? And Mr. Jones says, I'm doing fine. The doctor says, well, you had any problems recently? And Mr. Jones will say something like, uh, none that I can remember. And mm -hmm. uh, 
doctor will give you, you know, a couple of minutes. He'll take a quick look at you and say, it looks like you're doing great because a lot of the Alzheimer's patients are actually quite healthy. Mm-hmm. And he'll say, I'll see you again next year. And so Mr. Jones goes out to the waiting room. Mrs. Jones is waiting there dutifully and wondering what's happening. And she says, well, what did the doctor say? And Mr. Jones says, the doctor says, I'm doing great. And Mrs. Jones will say to him, well, did you tell him about your memory difficulties? And he'll say, no, I forgot. And mm-hmm. so that's, unless Mrs. Jones actually goes in and tries to make sure the doctor is attentive to that issue, the doctors really don't even have time to deal with it. Most haven't even been trained to deal with the difficulties of memory problems. So it's um, that's about where we are with, mm-hmm. with the, the general state of medicine. And, you know, one of the first things we need to do is to train doctors to be more attentive to this, and we need to train the population that, you have to take some sort of objective measurement of your memory to know if there's a problem. You just can't ask a person how their memory is. And that's why we developed MemTrax, is so that people could could easily take a test that was fun, that they wouldn't mind taking again. A lot of the tests that uh, that, that the uh, experts in Alzheimer's do for, on patients to test them for their memory are quite unpleasant. They'll say, okay, I've got... 15 words, and I want you to repeat these 15 words, and I want you to repeat them again and again, and I'll come back some minutes later and say, okay, do you remember those 15 words? And I don't know if you've ever done this before, but it's the most unpleasant exercise. Oh, it's and horrible. I'm I'm part of the Minnesota Memory Project, so I go in every year. And the very first year I went, I mean, I asked them, I'm like, are you going to let me go home? <laughs> because, because I was so stressed out thinking that I didn't do well, and they're like, oh, you did you did great. I said, you're kidding. I, I said, I didn't finish this, and I didn't know that. And they're like, Lori, we have to set these tests for, for people who, you know, have uh, photographic memories and all of this stuff. And I'm like, well, it would have been nice to tell me that up front because I just thought I did horrible. And then, you know, that adds even more stress. But, you know, I found the more I tried to concentrate on the answers, the worse I did. And when I sat there in a more relaxed state, I did better. But it's hard to sit it's there in a relaxed state because it's just, boom, 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 boom. It's, I mean, you might as well be getting, um, you know, a lie detector test with the FBI or something. That's what it feels like. It's exactly like. right, yes. <laughs> and that's why I developed MemTrax, because the whole process was so unpleasant. I want something that was as much fun to do as, say, a crossword puzzle or a Sudoku. And MemTrax mm-hmm. is designed to be exactly that. It's designed to be fun and easy and something you can do at home or you can do in a doctor's office. And it is much more sensitive to whether or not you have memory difficulty than one of these tests that they give. Uh-huh. Well, interesting. You know that there's gonna... a huge... Oh, go ahead. Well, I was going to say there's a, there's a huge problem, you know, in this world, and that's, you know, computers are taking over. They took over the banks and they've taken over the air, airline uh, scheduling systems. And with great difficulty, they're taking over the computerized medical record system. But at this point, they've not taken over the computerized testing of mental function. And while I don't know if they really want to take that over entirely, I think that there needs to be some computerization in that area as well. Mm-hmm. Well, interesting. I'm going to go ahead and um, just pull uh, Curtis in. And Curtis, I'm just wondering if you have anything that you wanted to add from the conversation so far in terms of, you know, the need for for um, a screening, you know, like Memtrax in terms of what are you seeing out there in terms of people's response to uh, to your technology? 
Uh, yeah. Um, uh, West used to go around and give mem tracks before it was mem tracks uh, to retirement homes all around uh, the community. You know, wherever he was, we used to live in Kentucky for a while, and he would go around there and present uh, healthy aging tips and information regarding memory loss and Alzheimer's disease. So after following him around and watching him give out these uh these tests, he would he would give it out on a slideshow projector and on a big audience, just like about, you know, thirty to forty people and they would all watch the images and go through the test and they would have to hand score, hand grade and go through and it was just so long and monotonous the process and I just wanted to do something. And with the technology and you know, I'm kind of a computer buff. I really like computers and always have. So I really wanted to take what I knew about computers and use it to help out with this test and bring it online and just get it out to the world because it was so cool and something he was so passionate about. He would just, just go around on his free time and give this information and try to find out how to, like, detect memory problems. And it's really cool. So I just wanted to get on board with that and help out wherever I could. That's that's wonderful. Um, Dr. Ashford, can you tell us, uh, you know, a little bit more about Memtrax? How does it how does it work? What types of, you know, if somebody goes online, what what is the process? Well, like I said, the difficulty I had with testing people is you ask them to remember something and you ask them a minute, just a minute later, just after distraction, they can't remember it. But um, the different tests are sort of awkward that you have to, you know, present something and you have to come back and say, okay, now do you remember it? And so what we we figured out was a way of, of interdigitating, sort of interleaving the items to remember with the uh, with the memory ta- challenges. Just, you know, can you remember what you just saw? And mm-hmm. so by presenting, we it can be done many different ways, but the way we've done it, you know, and in many audiences and have developed it online, um, we in, in trying you know, sort of experimenting with a lot of different things to sort of see what would, would work. We've come up with a just sort of a general outline where we provide 25 very interesting pictures, and the pictures can be um, you can you can at this point you can't choose the pictures, but we we've chosen the pictures to be things that would be very interesting pictures to look at, not maybe quite museum quality, but, you know, in that direction. So you'll enjoy looking at the pictures. But the trick is we show you a picture, and then we show you another picture, and then we show you a third picture. And the question is, is that third picture a new picture, or is it something you've seen before? Mm -hmm. And the test can be very easy or it can be very difficult, depending on how similar the pictures are. And we've basically set it up so we have five sets of five pictures. So we might say have five pictures of bridges and five pictures of houses and five pictures of chairs and things like that. So you can't just sort of simply name something and remember it. You have to actually look at it, name it, and have some encoding of the information in your brain. And then so you see a series of pictures, and you see some repeated, and you have to identify the repeated pictures by somehow indicating that as quickly as you can. So we measure Mm -hmm. response time, recognition time. So you can push the space bar on a keyboard. You can touch a touch screen on on an iPhone or Droid or whatever you have. Uh, we, we set it up so it'll work on any particular platform that's computerized, and we can measure your reaction time, and then we can measure your percent correct. 
and we can measure the percent of items that you falsely identified as being um, having seen before. So we can get three different measures, and each one of those gives a different indication of what kind of difficulties you might have. So you know, it takes some. You know, we show the pictures for like three or four seconds, and unless you say you've seen it before, in which case it just jumps on to the next one. And so in really less than two minutes, we can get a, a much more accurate assessment of your memory function than you can with these uh, tests that you have to take up in Minnesota. Okay. Okay. Well, that's that's nice to know. Um, Curtis, what, what does the product run in terms of cost to, to someone? Um, right now, it's uh, set up on a annual subscription-based model where you can sign up. And we're looking to have people take it once a week, once a month, just to kind of get an idea of how their overall brain health is doing. So we're really excited that we just got to launch our new website. We've uh, been working on this project for, I think, before around 2009-ish. And back in college when I graduated in 2011, I was just finishing uh, this website prototype with my buddies. And, yeah, it really just started to take off. We got some really good direction, and we're getting some great traction, lots of users, and it's going great. We're trying to make it really user-friendly, just focus on making it simple, easy to walk through, kind of uh, just very simple for the user, really easy to understand, and also available on lots of different devices because with technology changing, everyone's everywhere with mobile tech, and we wanted it to work on iProducts, Android, BlackBerry, whatnot, just because mm -hmm. that's what people are using. And we want it to be quick, easy, and available, and just a useful tool that people can get to. Well, and, and you know, keeping it, it simple and user-friendly is so important. And um, yet, for whatever reason, seems to be underrated in the scheme of things when people are pulling stuff together. They, they forget... Um, the audience that they're dealing with, and and so I think it's very important. And I'm glad to hear that you know you really tried to, um, you know, keep it user friendly. Um, I, I just think that that's such a critical piece that so many people developing sites forget about who their who their end user is and and why they're even there in the in the first place. Um, I, yeah. I, to me, it, that's just a massive, <clears throat> massive, massive um, mistake with that. Um, that is made repeatedly over there. Um, Dr. Ashford, can you tell us, um, you know, some of the status of, of some of the current Alzheimer's um, and dementia re uh, research out there? I know you had mentioned that you thought, you know, that we're, we're going to be able to um, prevent this, not just cure it, but but actually be able to prevent it. What is there is there one or two studies that really has you excited out there that that's going on right now? Well, um aggravated I think is the best word for my feeling about Alzheimer's research at this <laughs> point. Um because like I said, I've been in this since nineteen seventy eight and I was hoping that we would have finished this whole thing over by ten or fifteen years ago. And here we're still dealing with it. And there was an article that was in both Scientific American and in Nature magazine, in, which is a very prestigious magazine, 
in uh, June of this year that talked about where research was going in the field of Alzheimer's disease. And since about 1994, the field of Alzheimer's disease has been dominated by something called the beta amyloid hypothesis. Mm-hmm. The thought being the beta amyloid is the cause of Alzheimer's disease. And there were several uh, very solid pieces of evidence that pointed in this direction, but that did not indicate that beta amyloid was actually the culprit or the actual cause. And nonetheless, the field has been dominated by this theory of looking for a way of preventing the development of beta amyloid, which is now known to be a very normal protein in the brain, one of the most highly turned over proteins in the brain. And trying to eliminate it would be sort of similar to saying, well, okay, a person's bleeding. Let's see if we can eliminate hemoglobin, which might stop Mm -hmm. bleeding. And it's just been a totally misguided direction. Now, about the same time in the early 90s, there was a discovery that there is a genetic factor related to Alzheimer's disease. Now, nobody likes to deal with genes, particularly if it's going to tell them they have a high likelihood of getting Alzheimer's disease. But there is a gene that was discovered over 20 years ago called apolipoprotein E. And I'm hoping at this point that the field is going to turn back to understanding the apolipoprotein E gene and what it does. The issue is that the amyloid pre-protein is very important in Alzheimer's. This was this article by Dr. Bredesen described this, and I've, and I've actually have been publishing in the same area since 2002. But the amyloid pre-protein goes in two different directions. It either goes to forming new synapses, which are the connections in the brain, or eliminating synapses. And the beta amyloid is important in eliminating synapses, and the but there's also a part that's important to create new synapses, and this is right along the lines with you know, what just won the Nobel Prize today, that there's a mm-hmm. constant plasticity, a constantly changing connections in the brain, which is what's attacking, what Alzheimer's disease is actually attacking. And if we understand that um, and understand how the genetic factor is related to that attack, I think, I think, in a relatively short period of time, we'll be able to eliminate Alzheimer's disease. And Dr. Bredesen's article in Aging lists about 30 different factors. I had, I've been listing about 10 factors, which I thought were important for Alzheimer's disease. He goes on and lists about another 20. And some of them might be right and some of them might not be, but these are the sort of things that we have to look to see all the different things that we can do to prevent Alzheimer's disease. Now, let me give you just one very simple example. It's, it's totally unclear if diabetes is related to Alzheimer's disease or not, but it clearly is related to, out to dementia. And it does cause vascular disease. It may cause small strokes, which may be the second leading cause of dementia. Well, in any case, you want to prevent diabetes. And this type 2 diabetes is very much preventable by doing such extremely onerous things as getting enough exercise and not getting overweight and eating a good diet. And so those are things that probably right off at the beginning would be the best things to consider for preventing Alzheimer's disease or, or at least dementia. Be, you know, to eat, eat a good diet, get enough exercise, and make sure that you don't tip the scales too far in the wrong direction. Mm-hmm. Um, another important thing that we've seen is that education, people with more education have less Alzheimer's disease. And so we're very much interested in encouraging people, you know, to get good education and continue lifelong learning. 
So, I mean, those are some very simple things. Then you can get into other things that he talks about, you know, things like controlling your blood pressure and, you know, seeing your doctor on a regular basis to make sure your vitamin B12 level is okay and vitamin D has turned out to be very important. There's a whole series of different little things like this that I think it's going to become more and more important for people to be aware of and try to prevent certain risk factors. One of the big risk factors for Alzheimer's disease is head trauma. So Mm -hmm. wear your seatbelt when you're riding in your car. Um, If you're going to ride a bicycle, which is very good for you, wear a helmet when you're riding your bicycle. So there's a variety of simple things that I think is we can quantitate them more and more and get people educated about what to do. It it turns out that there's some recent evidence suggesting that the incidence of Alzheimer's disease is going down as people are following these good health tips. But we need to go have it go way down by getting everybody to follow these good health tips. You know, I have a question for you because I know a lot of people in just the community of dementia as a whole are upset that there there was reports that the numbers went down and and part of it was that people are worried that you know um, it's not going to be taken seriously in terms of the need for funding. But the other piece is um, people are worried that because there are you know, we're hearing more about Lewy body, frontal temporal, you know, all of those types of things. So it might not be under that title, and so the numbers might appear smaller, though it's just a different um, type of dementia. What What is your thought on that? Well, I think that the, what the autopsy data shows, or looking at people after they've died, I think it's a very good thing to have, you know, a person's brain looked at to see what was actually happening, you know, Curtis already brought up the issue of my father having dementia, which, um, you know, I had the unfortunate experience of watching him from having a very, very good memory to, to gradually losing his memory. Mm-hmm. And um, the um, when, he, when he finally passed on, I had his brain looked at to see what was actually happening. And it turned out that he had um, moderate to severe frontotemporal dementia, he had moderate to severe vascular dementia and mild to moderate Alzheimer's disease. So he had a, he was 89, 88 when he died. So he had, and as you get older, you develop more and more things. Mm-hmm. He had also been riding his bicycle without a helmet, so I know he had some several head traumas when he'd fallen. And he was also one of the best drinkers in San Francisco for many years, although he <laughs> never had a problem with it. Um and his, he had the lowest B12 level I'd ever seen, so he was not keeping up with his B12 shots. Um, so the, the thing is that Alzheimer's disease, like you, you reported your mother having this starting in her 50s, the mm-hmm. concern in that is that she probably had, one of the, unless she had one of the rare early onset genes, um, that she probably had, had two of the apolipoprotein E4 genes. Mm-hmm. And these are the genes that I think are so important for us to understand to see if we can't prevent Alzheimer's disease, at least in people who are under 80 years of age. And these, uh, the apolipoprotein E gene uh, codes for a protein that manages cholesterol. And so the management of cholesterol, I think, is going to be an absolutely critical factor for us to understand better to prevent Alzheimer's disease. And not managing it in the body, but actually managing it in the brain. Because cholesterol is the biggest constituent of the brain. Mm-hmm. So that's it's important for us to know all these things, and I don't know that if we eliminate Alzheimer's disease, people are going to grow older and have other types of dementia. So we have to be concerned about all of these things. I agree. 
I, I totally agree. Yeah, with my mom, she wasn't formally diagnosed until her mid-60s um, because for 10 years it was just kind of poo-pooed to hormones back then. And uh, when we finally did have her tested, they just did the, the 10 question test, and she had a good day, and she passed. And then, and then it wasn't approachable. And then when my dad got sick, we took her in for extensive testing, and they did, um, gosh, two or three days of testing. And by that point, it was hor- It was just horrible, horrible, horrible on her. And um, you know, the test results came back. You know, she's got the mentality of a three-year-old. Don't let her out of your sight. And um, it was pretty pretty scary and pretty devastating um, news to get, even though we saw the decline and we, we knew as a family and felt as a family that it was more um, back then. You know, like you said, the doctors today need more education, but back then it was, it was horrendous you know, in terms of trying to, get to the, trying, to, trying to get to the bottom of it. And it, it's still, I mean, I hear story, uh, just about a story every day about people going to the doctor and how they're treated or misdiagnosed and how difficult and painful it is for them um, to just have to, you know, hang out there and, and not, not have the support or get the diagnosis and then be told, you know, come back and see me in nine months or 12 months or, and oh, here's the number to the Alzheimer's Association and that's it. And um, they're just so overwhelmed. So yeah, there's there's so much that we need to change and it's exciting. I, I'm very excited about um, seeing the dementia-friendly communities and businesses starting to pop up and the dementia champions and, you know, there's more in the press um, about it. I, I just think those are all big positives. Um, I'd like to see more positive stories about the disease because a lot of it, I think, is still doom and gloom, and that's what scares people from coming out and, and getting tested is um, because it is all doom and gloom. And, um, you know, we've got we've to give people hope and we've got to give them support in the process. Otherwise, they're not going to want to um, find out uh, because of because of all the negatives attached to it. So we've got a long, well, me, long, long road me, to hoe, I think. Yeah, let me say one thing. We're, we have a paper coming out in the, the Journal of the American Geriatric Society in the near future about National Memory Screening Day. And it turns out people have been... The I'd like to see the Alzheimer's Association, the Alzheimer's Foundation of America, get on a more collegial uh, page here and cooperate <laughs> with Jerry because there's been tremendous arguments about whether screening is harmful or, you know, somehow it's going to lead people down some disaster direction. But mm-hmm. I've been very much a proponent for a long time that we need to screen. People need to be aware. There's nothing worse than people having a lack of awareness of a problem. And the, the so we promoted awareness and in the course of this, um, as, as people become aware, uh, they can then, the families can then marshal their resources and get organized. And we've shown that we can keep people out of the hospital and provide more efficient care. And if they start taking care of themselves, we can actually do things like substantially delay nursing home placement. There's been several mm-hmm. studies that have suggested this. But what we've shown with National Memory Screening Day is that people come in worried about their memory, and we test them. And 80% of the time we say, 
your memory is fine. Everybody worries about their memory. You learn to worry about your memory. I don't know when it is, about the second or third grade, when you can't remember things that your teacher's asking you to remember. And so your whole life, you're worried about your memory. And as long as you're worried about your memory, you're actually in better shape. It's when you quit worrying about your memory that problems start developing. Mm-hmm. So we're able to tell people that their memories are not a problem in most cases. And most and there's a slightly increased amount of people who worry about their memory um, that actually turn out to have serious memory problems. But since people have serious memory problems, first thing they forget is that they can't remember things. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, Alzheimer's disease is merciful to the person who has it, but a complete disaster, as you're talking about, in your experience, to the people who are trying to manage the person. Yep. Yeah. Well, and it was just, it was horrible on my mom, too, because she, she knew something was wrong. I mean, she made herself a three-ring binder on how to do her job, and um, she, you know, it, routines became so important in just different ways to ab- adapt in terms of telling time. I mean, she was she was brilliant. I mean, really, for <laughs> the stuff that she she maneuvered. You know, we one of her little simple tricks was just keeping the TV on the same channel because then she knew um, by the news and and uh, who was on if it was dinner time or lunch time or bedtime. And we didn't know what her, you know, deal was with it. Had to be on Channel Four. Well, you know, nowadays they change things up so much. It would be, you know, with programming, it would be difficult for someone to really utilize that in that fashion. But back then, it worked really well for her. You know, but she and didn't there, tell there was, you that. She didn't tell you that's what she was doing. No, 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 no. No. Exactly. There were. There were certain things she told us, um, and and that was usually when she couldn't when it didn't work anymore when she couldn't ha- when she didn't have a workaround um but it was i mean she was she was absolutely brilliant at covering it up it was just it was amazing um the things that she did and uh, you know i personally think the social engagement is so critical and i think that's why she lived as long as she lived was because um even in her last 4 years she was in her end stages um there was still a connection. I mean, it wasn't as deep and as vibrant, but she was she was very engaged with um, the people who surrounded her, um, and she was in a nursing home at that time. But um, it was it was incredible, you know. And you just see that that spark. And I, for me, I would like to see more research done on the effects of social engagement, um, and we're starting to see some now. But um, everything seems to be kind of pharma-driven um, in terms of a, a cure. And I think that, um, you know, from a personal aspect, I, I think that whole social piece is so critical in terms of how to live and how to care for somebody um, with it. Because, you know, uh, the little magic bullet's a ways out um, if there's even going to be one or if it's going to be, you know, just total change of lifestyle. I don't know. Um you know what the outcome is going to be, but I, I just see that that engagement piece is as so vital. Do you do you feel that the engagement piece is is critical when it comes to um, kind of fending off um, some of the symptoms of the disease at all? Well, I 100% agree with you. Um, I think it is extremely important, but 
you know, like I said, education is important, but part of, uh, you don't have to necessarily go to school to get educated. Interacting with people, I believe that, you know, it's social interactions. I even believe that going to church is good for people, at, you know, for not for necessarily specifically spiritual reasons, but because of the tremendous amount of support and engagement with other people that a church will offer or many other types of social organizations will offer. So I think that continuing these sort of things is the sort of stimulations your brain needs to have. And it needs to be non-stressful stimulation uh, where mm-hmm. it's pleasant and keeps you going. And, and I'll say, you know, my father was extremely social. And even in the last year of his life when he was in a care situation, um, he was still one of the most pleasant guys anybody knew. And you would go in to see him, and he'd say, hey, he's so glad to see you and so happy that you came to visit him. And uh, do you know who I am? Well, I think I do. Um, it's uh, and, and he still was living a, a very rich life in spite of, you know, being sort of unable to remember almost anybody. But mm-hmm. I, he, I think that it's important, to, and that was, you know, when he was in his late 80s, but he'd been having this problem at least for 10 years. Uh huh. So these things go gradually. It's you know part of life. You're not going to stop the aging process, is what I've discovered. But you can certainly try to minimize the uh, amount of, of aging that your brain is doing, and, and try to maintain your social interactions as best as you can. And the things that I'm suggesting are not so much pharma-driven. Um, things like exercise and diet are not. I'm not recommending uh, pills for those. In fact, the problem is pharma has been so driven towards the profit motive that this beta amyloid theory, they've wasted about $10 billion studying any drug that would treat that particular condition when that condition turns out to be a normal condition, that beta amyloid is a normal substance in the brain. And mm-hmm. the, the people who are, you know, the, quote, the thought leaders, sometimes aren't really so savvy as to what's really going on. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I yeah, <clears throat> I would tend to agree with that. It's uh it's very it's very spooky because um credibility is is so established and um how do I want to say it? But pe- people people don't always see it. people just kind of rely if somebody says that they're doing something and they've been doing it a long time that that they're the go-to person and or the go-to organization and they have a handle on it so no one else has to worry about it and you know this is a disease everybody needs to worry about everybody needs to get involved because nobody can do it alone you know it's just it's too massive and it's so varied um you know with each individual and each family and each community what the needs are um i mean we really have to work together as a whole and share uh share knowledge i, I that's my thought anyways i just um i'm kind of crazy on that whole piece of of collaboration and and there's not a lot of it out there and um drives me bananas myself um you know and, and that's something that i i really strive very very hard um to be collaborative and work with others and and share and that's one of the reasons I started the show and and um you know Alzheimer's speaks as a whole is it's about lifting everybody's voice so that they can adapt and and have the opportunity to pick and choose what's going to work for them um versus being told it's a b or c and these are your only options because I mean I've now that I'm connected you know social media wise I am shocked I mean, I, I am just 
dumbfounded on how much, how many resources are out there that that the public does not know about, and it just it saddens me. It really saddens me um, that we're not pulling together and working better as a team for the for the greater good for for our basic sense of of community standards and embracement. So. You know, I'm, I'm very excited about your your mem tracks. I, I love that it's um, it's a test that is fun and engaging, and it's not it, it doesn't you know the way you've you've put it together the pr- it doesn't feel like a test. You know, the pressure, um, just the the wording um, in terms of what you're asking for, I think makes it a little bit easier uh, for people to be able to to adjust and um and go forward with their answers. So um Curtis, how do people get a hold of hold of you guys uh with Memtrax if they're interested? Uh just go to the website, check out the contact page or feel free to email me at Curtis at dot com. Okay. And again the, the website is Memtrax um and that would be www dot m e m t r a x dot com. Um, any final words, Doctor Ashford, that you'd like to add? Well, Laurie, I, I really appreciate your pushing this because it's only going to be through pushing this. Through, uh, unfortunately, the, the world is really all about politics, and politics is local, and it's about people getting interested and concerned and pushing the establishments to try to find the answers that things get done. So I really, really appreciate what you're doing, and I appreciate your having us on the show today to talk about, you know, what I've spent really most of my life trying to get this whole thing moving forward, and um, really appreciate the help you've given us today. Well, thank you. I'm so honored that you were able to to give us an hour of your time. Um, I know you're very busy, and um, exciting news, um, again, with the the Nobel Prize uh, information that came out again today. Um, That's that's fantastic. That's just going to elevate, I think, the research, again, a little bit more, get people a little more excited and who knows, maybe more money will be pushed at it again, too. Push us uh, in the right direction. Yep, yep, that would be fantastic, fantastic. Well, thank you both so much for being on the show with us. Again, I would appreciate our our listening audience if you have uh if you haven't already liked us and tweet us and push us out to your friends. This is information that that your communities need. Everybody is dealing with this uh in their own home or in their neighbors. Uh this is this is a disease that um is quite silent on a lot of levels, um, and it needs attention. Uh, we, and we can we can raise that level by working together. So thank you so much, Dr. Ashford and um, Curtis. We will talk us. with you soon, and I look forward to uh, watching things progress uh, with Memtrax over the years. I'm going to go ahead and just do a mid-program highlight, and then I'm very excited for our next two guests as well today. Um, If you weren't able to listen to our last show, uh, it was titled Giving Hope to Those Dealing with Dementia with uh, Karen Truman. And she uh, has an organization called Dementia Caregivers Resource. And she's got a a book out that's just uh, just 
full of full of resources and um it's it's all about giving hope and it's um it's one that if you haven't picked it up, you might want to do. It's called The Dementia Caregiver's Little Book of Hope. And loaded with great information, simple read, uh, <clears throat> easy resource book to be able to grab what it is you you need when you need it. Um, our next show is actually going to be tomorrow. That's our, Tuesdays are our standard show. And Health Star is going to be talking about adapting the Alzheimer's Whisper program. Uh, Health Star is a home health company. Um, who has just done a brilliant job in terms of really embracing um, the needs of those dealing with dementia. And that's going to be a pre-recorded show just because I, I um, am going to be speaking tomorrow uh, down in Northfield, Minnesota. And so we did a pre-record of that. So you won't be able to call in or, or ask questions on that. Um, and then our last dementia chats, and that is where we interview or I interview uh, people with dementia. They are our experts. We discussed on what goes into making a website dementia-friendly, and we talked a little bit about service dogs. Our conversations go so fast on that, and all the webinars are free. We do those on Tuesdays. uh, twice a month, the second and fourth. Um, there will be some changes in schedule there just because of my uh, travel and speaking schedule coming up. So I haven't quite pinned down what we're doing for the 14th. That I may do a replay if we can't get everybody's schedules uh, coordinated on another date there. Our past blogs uh, just recently that were posted, uh, Carol Larkin did a great article on talking about striking features of memory care home solutions. So if you're caring for somebody in your home, what can you do to make life easier, uh, not only for the person with dementia, uh, but for those living with them? And Carol is with Third Age Services, and she always does a great job with her with her information. Uh, we did an article on Code for Armor, which is some new life-saving technology that's simple, safe, and small. And uh, then we posted a couple of articles on Greg O'Brien, who's with us today. Um, he He's had some wonderful, wonderful press, uh, talk so openly, and I'm very excited to have him on the show today. There was also um, a post that I wrote on Come Dance With Us. I'm going to be doing a, uh, an emceeing for an event for Guyana Homes uh, November 7th here in Minnesota at the Metropolitan Club, and they're going to have ballroom dancers. It's going to be a very fun night. If you're interested in participating or just donating, these are a couple of small group homes that, uh, you know, they don't want to have to kick anybody out because they've run out of money, and so every year they raise funds uh, to be able to maintain that quality of care uh, for those who, who may not be able to actually afford it anymore. So it's a great, great cause. We also posted on November 30th a person-centered matter videos. It's 60 minutes long. It was put out by the Dementia Action Alliance Organization, which is a new national organization that's just going to be launching here. And so that was great. Uh, There was also a call to action from Meryl Comer, who is associated with Us Against Alzheimer's, and she's also wrote the book Slow Dancing with a Stranger. Um, Meryl was a... Um, a journalist herself and 
uh, took care of her husband for, for years. And then the last one I want to highlight was just an article by the Alzheimer's Research and Prevention Foundation. They did a nice article on healthy foods and smaller portions uh, being the key to longevity. So that's always always good stuff to know. So let me go ahead and introduce uh, Greg O'Brien. Greg has more than 35 years of newspaper um, and magazine experience as a writer, an editor, an investigative reporter, and publisher. Over the years, he has contributed to the Associated Press, UPI, USA Today, Cape Cod Times, uh, the Boston Irish Reporter, the Boston Magazine, and the list just goes on and on. Um, he's been a, a senior writer. He's um, he's just held so many different positions of editor, publisher, managing director, and um, he's he's written um, and edited several books. And he's also been involved in documentaries and done some script writing. So fascinating background. He uh, was just diagnosed um, with dementia, and he has written a book called On Pluto, Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's. He now blogs for the Huffington Post and Psychology Today. Um, Greg is married um, and lives out in, um, I believe it's Cape Cod, and um, he's he's just been, uh, you know, I just learned about Greg, and I, I've just been so impressed with the work that he's done. So welcome, Greg. How are you today? Thank you for having me. I appreciate that. Well, I, I um, you know, I've been following you um, just recently because I didn't know you were out there, i got to tell you. Um, but well, I was you out are, on Pluto. You were out on Pluto, huh? But you are making such a big impact, and um, I, I really look forward to hearing your voice um, very strongly um, as you, you've kind of come out of the shoots here on a, on a national and probably international level, because I know my, my followers are international. Um, and I, I think you're going to make a really, really big difference. Um, before I get into our line of questioning, though, Greg, I, let me go ahead and introduce Dr. Molly Perdue. And she is the author of Exploring the Experiences of Family Caregivers, uh, Cape Cod's Invisible Workforce, and Upholding the Promises of Olmstead for People with Alzheimer's and Dementia-Related Diseases. Um, she is the Director of Family Services at Hope Health Care of Cape Cod, and she's worked with thousands of families and individuals dealing with dementia. Uh, Dr. Purdue is an expert in the field of caregiving and dementia care, and she served on the Massachusetts Working Group to create the Massachusetts, I can barely say that word, Massachusetts <laughs> Alzheimer's Disease Plan and help create the Massachusetts Silver Alert Policy. As founder and executive director of the newly formed nonprofit called Alzheimer's Family Caregiver Support Center, she continues her work as an educator, clinician, researcher, and advocate for families and individuals living with Alzheimer's and dementia-related diseases on Cape Cod and elsewhere. So welcome, Dr. Purdue. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you, Lori, for having me on your show. 
Well, I'm I'm just so excited to have you both here. I I think this is going to be just a very fun, fun conversation. Um, Greg, I'm going to start out with you. Can you tell us, you know, when did you realize something was wrong um, where you were feeling a little bit different? Well, first of all, a little background might be helpful. My maternal grandfather died of Alzheimer's. And uh, my uh, mother died of Alzheimer's, and I had a front-row seat for both. I was the family caregiver for my mother, who died after a bruising, knockdown battle with this demon called Alzheimer's, and she taught me how to fight it. Um, I'm, I'm 64, and in my mid to late 50s, uh, I started experiencing horrific short-term memory uh, loss. Uh, I didn't recognize people at times, didn't recognize places. At times I saw things that weren't there. Doctors call that misperceptions, but it's, 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 it's really hallucination. Um, I dealt with incredible rage and, uh, from the disease. And, uh, and then, uh, I had a serious head injury, uh, that, uh, doctors say unmasked the disease and making it's almost like the pro football players who, who are given to dementia. Then I had the brain scan, the spec scan, and the clinical test, which confirmed the diagnosis of Alzheimer's. And um, and then they gave me the gene test, and, and I, I also carry a, a marker gene, one of the chief marker genes for Alzheimer's. And people can Google that, um, APOE4. And, and so I, you know, I'm, I'm in the early stage now, and, and I'm dealing with what the doctors call a cognitive reserve, you know, through the blessing of my parents and God, I had a, a good intellect. And um, so it's like a reserve fuel tank in a boat. And um, and so I, you know, I, I said, you know, I could roll up into a little ball and shake my fist at God, both of which I did, or I could maybe just do what I do, which is report the story. And hence the book, Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's, I kept notes for six years, 800 to close to 1,000 pages of notes of what I was going through, and then uh, then, then took uh, a, a few years to, to write it. Um, just a final point here. The, 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 the point about my book, which it's on its way to bookstores, but you can get it on Amazon, uh, is, is a book about living with Alzheimer's, not dying with it. The, the, the dying part comes later, and people... As, as you know, they, 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 we all love the stereotype, and the stereotype is, um, uh, you know, you're in a nursing home, and uh, you're about ready to die, and you got Alzheimer's, and everyone's saying, "Well, you're gonna, you're gonna die anyway," and and that's really not what the disease is about. It's about the journey, and um, you know, uh, I am incontinent at times. At times, sixty percent of my short-term memory gone in thirty seconds. Uh, including my wife at times. I don't recognize people uh, lost in familiar places. Uh, when I pick up a phone at times and I can't figure out how to dial it, I hurl it against the wall or pick up a, a, a lawn sprinkler and, and throw it against a tree because I don't know what it is. And I'll let Molly, Molly talk in a minute, but if I could leave you with this, uh, um, Alzheimer's um, is, is, is the early and the mid as well as the end stage. And in the early stage, there are people like me who are talking and as articulate as I am. And they're coming up to me now in, in book signings and hugging and crying, saying, thanks for speaking out. And 
just one kind of overall word picture of Alzheimer's in the beginning. Think of yourself in a living room, and you want to uh, read a good book at night, and and you're sitting next to in your favorite chair next to a lamp, and the lamp starts to blink. Alzheimer's is a loose plug in a socket, and so you you get up and you push the plug back in, and the light blinks again, and you push the plug back in, and the light blinks again. Now you're getting a little annoyed, and 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 you push the plug back in, and then it it, it becomes in time over time so loose that the plug falls out. You put the plug back in, it falls out. Pretty soon you can't put the plug back in because it's too loose. Everyone knows that experience. The light goes dark, and that's the end of Alzheimer's. That's the end stage. Mm-hmm. Well, that's a that's a really nice way to to be able to uh, to state it so people can visually um, understand what the disease is like. I know Norm's McNamara talks about a Christmas tree uh, lights, and one will um, one will go out, and then another goes out, and another goes out, and you know, pretty soon the tree isn't lit anymore. And um, but your your analogy works very well too. I I think with yours it. It I, it made me feel the frustration of those lights going out because I, I could I could picture myself trying to make it work you know and and uh, I know with my mom you know living with the disease for thirty years I, I, there was a lot of frustration in the process and, and, and the frustration trying to make it work and it can't and that's the yep. real frustrating part you can't work yep well and one of the things we just came across i i do a lot of um speaking in one of the one of my talks is a kind of a town hall meeting and i had titled it living well with dementia and some some of our experts on dementia chat said you know Lori, we don't like that title and i said well, you know why not and they said because we don't feel like we can anymore a few years ago we were still able to adapt and that title wouldn't have we wouldn't have minded it. But now as the diseases progress they're they're finding that they're running out of options. And so they asked me, Can you just call it living with dementia? And I said, Sure, I I'll change that. You know, um and so I think it's important for us to have these conversations of you know, what's respectful um to people um because you know some things we can change and that's not going to bring people a ton of comfort but you know if i can add a little and and not be uh frustrating um then that's helpful that's a good thing and i think it's very important that we have that we have these conversations um i'm going to go ahead and pull molly in dr um dr Purdue, and um you know, I'm just interested, you know, with you, Dr. Purdue, have you been personally touched in your family with dementia or, you know, what what got you on this path? Well, Lori, just like you, I, I was caring for my mother. Um, when I started a family, my mother was starting to suffer from dementia symptoms. She was having difficulty uh, living independently, and she moved from Florida to Cape Cod, at, at the time she moved out to live with us, we, we actually uh, had two apartments, and she moved into the bottom floor because she was still able to be very independent with a little help. And then she began to progress, and we had to get her the help that she needed, which you know we found very difficult like a lot of families. And it just happens that at the same time I was trying to help my mother and, and raising two small children, I was also working on a Ph.D. dissertation. 
And my advisors, every time I would have a meeting, my advisors would say, oh, my gosh, you know, we have this meeting and all you talk about is Alzheimer's. So you need to really think about just throwing out your study, throwing out everything you did and, and just start anew because this seems to be your passion. And is anyone going through a Ph.D. will tell you you're never supposed to do that. You know, you're, you're, you're never supposed <laughs> to change midstream. But, but I did because I was so fascinated by the fact that when you're actually doing this, this wonderful thing for your family, that there wasn't more out there. And so, you know, as I started researching uh, for my dissertation, I was able to glean a lot of information that actually helped me take care of my mother. And so there was one point where, given the extreme cost of the disease, that there were five of us, my two small children, my partner, myself, and my mother, living in 960 square feet of space. Um, thank God we, we lived in Provincetown, Massachusetts, which was on the water. So we had this wonderful kind of expansive view out the, out the window. But, you know, the reality was we really got to experience what it was like for my mother going through her disease progression. And so in that way, you know, we kind of became accidental advocates. And, uh, you know, I feel fortunate that I then had the, my Ph.D. because I completed it, obviously, and, and that's why you're calling me doctor. And, and now I'm able to kind of take that information, take that personal experience, and try to give back and try to help families that are going through this. And, and so that's what I do now. And uh, you know, I've been able to amass a lot of experience as the boots on the ground, sitting down with families, doing family meetings, uh, running support groups, support groups not only for people that have the disease, that are in early stages of the disease, but for their caregivers as well. And so it's, you know, we, we need to do a lot of work because people need a lot of support and we're just starting to talk about this. And this is why Greg's book, I feel, is so vitally important and the work that you do is so critical to get people having these conversations so that we can start talking so we can start to reduce some of the isolation that families experience oh i i totally agree greg when you first got diagnosed did you tell family and friends or did you kind of keep it on the lowdown well there's a we live in a wonderful world called uh, denial and um <laughs> I, I, you know, and one of the chapters in my book is uh, a quote from Mark Twain, denial uh, just ain't a river in Egypt. And um, and so I I kept it uh, because uh, from people, because I was concerned about what people would say. I was concerned about the denial of my family because I saw it with my mother. Um, you know, the worst thing in the world is, is to have these freaking horrific symptoms and um, everyone says, uh, um, hey, you look good. And, uh, you know, it's almost like the deaf person, uh, the mute person saying, do I look deaf? And, um, you know, it, it, uh, you know, I I, I also, which you'll read in my book, have prostate cancer, which I'd say to someone, Mm -hmm. do I look like I have prostate cancer? Uh, and, and I'm not treating the prostate cancer, by the way, because, uh, my exit strategy, because I, I, um, I saw my mother and my grandfather in the final stage, and I don't want my children and family seeing me at that stage. And, um, but people love to do the drive-by diagnosis. And, and, and that's why I wrote the book 
one of the reasons to to articulate on um, the early and mid stages of Alzheimer's as well as the end stages to get this nation and this world comfortable talking about it, to get um, people like myself and others who are either caregivers or in early symptoms or fear they might have it to speak out. I mean, you know, pro football last night, this week is, which is wonderful. It's, it's everyone's wearing pink and they should, I mean, breast cancer is a freaking horrific disease. We need to spend more money. But but is 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 there anyone uh, uh, running around uh, at football games wearing uh, uh, armbands for Alzheimer's? Uh, you know, we it's it's this is a disease that's going to outstrip cancer and heart disease sevenfold in seven years to come. It's going to take the baby boom generation out, and we're afraid mm-hmm. to talk about dementia because it sounds like a devil running in 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 in, in the desert. And we I hate to say this, but we need to make the word dementia popular, and uh, we I need agree. to get people talking about it. And, and I'm and angry. It's and and, uh, it, and it, it's a, you know, there's an old saying with the Irish: the, the uh, never get mad, get even. And I'm getting even with Alzheimer's now. <laughs> well, and and it's really important um, what you said. It you know people shouldn't be fearful of the word, but I mean. You know, cancer used to be the C word, and and we didn't even, you know, we weren't able to say the word AIDS, and um, you know, the the breast cancer. It's wonderful the way that that's been embraced, and the new, you know, global angel is um, the purple angel is something that everybody can use from an individual to a large corporation to uh, to a community to raise awareness, and it's free. You know, it doesn't cost anything, but it's getting people to work together. And that is something that I, I don't know, I guess as I'm getting older, I'm 55 now, but I I, I realize how um, we don't work near as well together as we should. There's just that, you know, we're, we're set up on this competition platform. And, you know, so there's arguments over, should we call it Alzheimer's? Should we call it dementia? Should we come up with a different name? You know, and, and in the meantime, we're losing footage. You know, we're, we're losing our footage. We should call it a crisis. Yeah. Yeah, jump on board. You call it whatever you want, but have a conversation. And, um, and, and do something that's globally attached because it's so confusing to families you know what it is. In fact, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask uh, Dr. Purdue. Can you just tell people? And we've we've gone over this a zillion times on the show, but it's always interesting to hear how everyone explains it. What is the difference between Alzheimer's and dementia? Oops, I suppose I have to make you live so you can answer. So just a second here. That's my fault. <laughs> there you oh, go. That's okay. Am, am I, I'm on now. So so You're dementia there, yeah. is this is a set of symptoms. And it, and it is confusing for people. Uh, every time I teach a class, they say, what's the difference? What's the difference? And I think that, you know, knowing that dementia is the symptomology, so the person has to have some failings in two or more cognitive categories. So whether it's memory loss or executive functioning or judgment, you know, they have to have a decline in those abilities that interfere with their daily living. And and that's probably, you know, the difficulty around just the semantics, you know, contributes to the fact that only 50% of people that are symptomatic 
are have an official diagnosis where they've gone to see a doctor, they've gone through some type of testing, and, and they have been diagnosed as having some type of disease. So knowing that there are over 70 different types of dementia-related diseases and Alzheimer's happens to be the most common and vascular dementia runs a close second, it becomes critical that families reach out to the medical community to have the conversation about what's happening when someone begins to see signs, you know, of, of memory loss or cognitive changes that seem to not be normal aging. And, and that's really what, what's so critical for people uh, to get is that, you know, when you start to notice some discernible change in your cognition, you want to start the conversation. And you want to get the information that you need because, as we know, there are reversible types of dementia. So people can lose memory, lose cognitive functioning, and it, it can be reversible in a few cases, only, only in 10 to 20% of the cases, but someone could have a vitamin B12 deficiency. Someone could have hypothyroidism. Someone could be suffering from a clinical depression that affects memory. And if you don't start that conversation, you'll never know if you can get some type of medical treatment for those forms. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, and and what, I, what I researched when I was working on my dissertation, I found an article that I thought was so compelling and so interesting, and it was written by a doctor, and he talked about vascular changes, and he talked about that if we really wanted to do a better job at eliminating so many cases of dementia, you know, we would talk about something as simple, a non-invasive procedure as having a carotid artery, you know, ultrasound. And that if we, were, if we did a better job at cardiovascular disease, then we could reduce those numbers of cases. And I thought, you know, that's, that's a compelling argument. Now, I'm not a medical doctor, but, you know, it sounds as if we all have to get on board. You know, we have to, we have to start to create a political force so that we can get people diagnosed, that we can get the educational information out there. You know, if we were in the U.K., they have put billions of dollars into providing educational material so that people can be trained and they can understand things like what is dementia and what is Alzheimer's so that they can get the help and assistance and support that they need. Which is, uh, it's amazing the difference Um for what they're doing over there and what we're doing here and their ability to join. Um, and it's not always easy, but it seems to be going better than here in the U.S., the, the grassroots effort versus kind of the academic medical models seem to work better together um, overseas than they do here. And, and I think that that's starting to change. Um, but, I, you know, I, for me, I'd like to see it change even even more so. Um, Greg, do you have anything that you would add in terms of if someone asked you what the difference is between dementia and Alzheimer's? Or... Yeah, I, I tend to, because um, I'm a dumbass, so if I could use that word, I tend to try to keep it simple. <laughs> and and as, a, as a journalist, I, I, I try to, which, which is one of the things I think that's um, – um, different about my book. It's the first book written by a reporter embedded inside the mind of Alzheimer's, chronicling his own progression. And um, I, I think of dementia as the umbrella 
under which uh, numerous uh, cognitive disorders, including Alzheimer's, fall. And you need to attack dementia. Alzheimer's just happens to be the uh, most prevalent form of it. But call, give it any name you want. Throw any letters up on, on, on the board. But it's, it's, it's loss of self. Uh, it's a cognitive decline. Uh, you can't remove the brain. This country has to start getting comfortable about talking about its brain. I agree. I, I definitely Lori, agree. Mm-hmm. Could I could I add? I read a support group, as I said earlier, for people that are at early stages of of the disease, and and they told me they hate the word dementia. <laughs> they, you know, they like to refer to themselves as having cognitive impairment at this stage. That they feel that that's that's a little more accurate. It depicts exactly what what they're experiencing that these are the impairments that are referred to in, you know, in the actual definition of dementia. Okay. Well, and I think that that's the, that that's really good. Um, I know there's, there's others out there that don't like the word Alzheimer's or dementia and they say use the word forgetful because we're all forgetful. We all forget. And it's just the, the level of forgetfulness that, um, that really comes to be. There's, there's so many different words, but I, I think it's, you know, we have to, we have to decide what is comfortable for people. And that, that's going to change, um, between communities and cultures. Um, and, and yet we have to have that overall umbrella. Um, inclusion you, you raise it. Uh, I'm sorry. Oh, go um, ahead. Go ahead, Greg. Yeah, you, you know, uh, and I always have to apologize because what happens is sometimes a thought comes in my mind, and if I don't say it, it's lost, and then I feel like I'm stepping on someone's line. So I, I, I apologize. I, I, I didn't mean to to do that, but this, and and I'll only do that when I think it's important. But I write about this in my book. There's, you know, people ask questions. Well. I lost my keys or I, I don't know where my car is. And, and, and I, I say after talking to a lot of doctors at Harvard and around the country that there's a difference between losing your keys and not knowing you have car keys. And there's mm-hmm. a difference between not being able to find your car in a parking lot and not knowing that you have a car. And I'll give you a case in point when the bug fell out of my head uh, in the last year. I went to uh, on Cape Cod. We go to the Town Dump. It's kind of a social event where we throw our garbage. But uh, <laughs> when I was, uh, you know, I'm surprised I don't have restaurants there. Uh, when when uh, I was done, I looked around and I said, "Oh my God, uh, how do I get home now? I, I, I better call my wife. Maybe someone could drive me home." I I, I drive a freaking yellow Jeep, and it was sitting right in front of me, and my brain did not recognize my car. And uh, it just, the, the blood pulled out, and it didn't recognize that car. And uh, uh, I didn't know my car was there. And that's the difference between forgetting where you park your car and not knowing that you have a car. And that's that's a perfect, perfect example of that. And I know, you know, when I talk with people with memory loss, one of the things that they mention all the time is the frustration of people saying, well, you look fine. You know, just because of what you said earlier, that whole denial piece, and and they said that it just puts them through the roof because it's like if I'm telling you I'm having a problem, trust me, it's a problem. You know, this 
it doesn't have anything to do with what I look like outside. Um, or, well, you know, you know the, uh, uh, in the Huffington Post, anyone who wants to Google Greg O'Brien Huffington Post, I wrote a piece about depression called The Black Dog. And uh, I've dealt with clinical depression since I was a young man. And, um, and in, 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 in uh, Alzheimer's, it gets uh, even more exaggerated. And, um, and, and people would look at you and go, well, you don't look depressed. Did you think Robin Williams looked depressed? And, yeah. and people make, you know, people make, and I mentioned Robin, the, the comedian Robin Williams, and he's a genius, but the demons. And, and you know, I'm as guilty as anyone else as a drive-by, okay, because I don't want to deal with crap, and nobody does. It's almost like I ask you, hey, how do you feel? And I'm not really interested. I just want you to know that I asked the question. And I, I think we need to maybe try to move away from that. If you ask the question, really care, and, and look inside someone's heart and soul and mind as opposed to just getting a drive-by, um, that's annoying for someone dealing with a serious illness. It's, it's very annoying. Yeah, I. I didn't mean to. Get, I would. It, it just gets gets my Irish up. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to. No, no. There's, there's no need to apologize. Everything you're bringing up is fantastic, Greg. So this is this is wonderful. One of the things that I wanted to ask you was, um, you know, how has this disease affected your kind of work life balance? You know, has I would imagine that that's changed in some way. Well, th- there are a lot of things I can't do anymore. And um, as, as I say, that the, the, and this is the only way I can explain it, the right side, left side of the brain, you know, in medical terms, the doctors look at that differently, but in layman's terms, people can understand it. The creative side of my brain, um, e- even though it takes uh, exponentially longer to do things, is still intact as it was with my mother. My mother could speak and articulate almost right up till the last six, eight months when she was, you know, it's it's a marathon race. And at some point the boogeyman's not only going to pass you, but it's going to run you over. And, um, and my mother taught me how to run. And, and, uh, but in that process, you lose, uh, and, and, and Molly will talk about this, a lot of cognitive um, ability. And so you learn what you can do well and, and what you can't do well. And, um, you know, a good example, uh, I'm, I'm, you know, and I'm not driving as much as anymore, so people, I don't want people get all upset. But um, a year and a half ago, I'm driving home from Boston to uh, Cape Cod, and this is my home territory. I mean, I could, you could blindfold me and I could do that. But um, I, the plug fell out, and... Um, I didn't know in familiar territory where I was. And I remember my mom keep telling me in Alzheimer's, keep asking questions, Greg. And I felt if I pulled over, I was recognizing that I was lost. And uh, being alone and feeling lost is, is some of the most debilitating feeling in Alzheimer's. I didn't want to be lost even though I knew I was. And I know that sounds dumb, but that's just, that's my soul speaking. And mm-hmm. so I kept driving, and I was able to control the car. Um, there are people with Alzheimer's who are driving, and, and, and they're still able to control the car. Um, and it wasn't until midnight when I was in Boston. It wasn't until about 2 o'clock in the morning. 
I realized in familiar territory where I was, which was outside Providence, Rhode Island. I had to turn around in a total different direction of where I was going. I had to turn around and then drive another hour and 45 minutes home to Cape Cod. And, mm-hmm. and it, it, so you learn, you ask the question, strategies. You, you, you learn, okay, I need drivers now. Um, I, I use my MacBook uh, uh, Pro. I, uh, you'll never see me without it. It's 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 my brain or my iPhone. Uh, I constantly uh, email myself. Uh, we we all do that, but not to the extent that I'm doing now because I don't want to forget. I'm afraid. I'm. I got to tell you, I'm afraid. I'm going to forget. And so, a Friday recently, uh, I I looked at my inbox and 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 I said, Oh my God, ninety messages. It's Friday. I just need a break. And then I, I, I looked in the inbox, and about 80 were from me. So you got to laugh. You have to have a – got to walk in faith, humor, and hope. And, and, um, but, but those are my strategies, among other things. And, and my biggest strategy – and I'm not here to proselytize, but I'll tell you, without my faith in God, and we all find God in different ways, and I appreciate that, um, without my faith in God, I'd be a dead man walking. And um, so I – that's that's a big part of my strategy. Molly, okay. thoughts on strategy? I, I just I just wanted to comment that Greg talks about the plug falling out, and that type of variability of symptoms. You know, when we talk about dementia symptoms, is really confounding not only to people with disease because they're experiencing that, but but as well as for their family members, and it's partly what contributes to that sense of denial is that, you know, one moment Greg is is sitting there writing a book that is, you know, exceptional, and the next moment, you know, he has difficulty uh, recognizing his wife or finding his way back home. And so, you know, we don't really understand how to relate sometimes to our family members when they're symptomatic, and we don't know, you know, what what to say of it or what to do of it when the person is experiencing that type of variability. So it's all these unknowns, I think, that help contribute to this sense of what do we do? What do we focus on? How do we move a national conversation forward so that people can get the support and assistance they need? You know, I've I've attended some of the meetings in Washington that the Advisory Council on, on Alzheimer's disease have run, and they talk about this date of 2025 as wanting to slow down, ameliorate, or eliminate, you know, Alzheimer's, or at least slow down the progression by 2025. And I think, all right, it's 2014. There's a lot of people and there's a lot of lives. If we're talking about 5.4 million people nationally, uh, almost a quarter million that have early onset, and those numbers are just rising exponentially to the the sound of a 300% increase in the next 20 to 30 years. And what are we going to, you know, what are we going to do? What are we going to do, and how are we going to help people live with the disease? And this is what's so important about Greg's book, is that he talks about, you know, strategies and and what he's just talking about now is to help people, you know, do the day-to-day. You know, when you get up and, uh, as one woman in my group says, you know, it feels like she's had a glass of wine and then the fog will, will pass and then she'll be okay and she'll be able to, to go on about her day. So, so having these support groups for people where they can find others 
that are suffering from similar symptoms and they're able to talk about it, come up with strategies, figure out how to how to get the support they need in a in a very dignified way. It's really, really important for people. Oh, I agree. Um, Greg, can I ask you, do you go to a support group? I I, I started in but the support group was uh um uh, a little uh, uh took a long time to uh to, to get to. And uh um uh, so and and I'm not a um I'm not a joiner, so mm-hmm. uh, um, I, I didn't I didn't want to, uh, to 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 do that. It, it just it, it felt it, it felt awkward, and um, so I um, uh, it just wasn't me. And uh, okay. but but I think I would have gone more if it was nearby, but it was too far. Yeah, well, that makes a that makes a big difference, I think, for people is the you know the accessibility. Can make a huge, huge difference. Uh, Dr. Purdue, you were going to add something on there. Yeah, I just wanted to add that that many people aren't joiners, so support groups might not be for everybody. But part of what I do with families is we have family meetings, and they can be transformational for the family, for the person that has the disease to sit if they've if they've not had a chance to really meet with all their family members and try to talk about the creation of some type of plan and support. Those family meetings are critical, and they're, they're completely founded in the research. You know, there was seminal research done by the NYU caregiver study where they, they conducted family meetings. So, so there's work out there. There's research out there that really talks about counseling as a wonderful paradigm, as a wonderful way to bring the family into the discussion about these diseases and trying to find some way to, to see their way through. And that has been my experience. My, my actual boots-on-the-ground experience has been that families that feel that support are really able to make a difference in their day-to-day lives. You know, Greg talked about depression. And this disease is just rife with all sorts of depression. Uh, people that, that have memory loss experience depression somewhere up to, I think, around 40% of people that are suffering from Alzheimer's can have some form of depression. It's really hard to diagnose in the person with memory loss, and we don't do a very good job systematically of doing that. You know, caregivers have a very high rate of depression, and most of the time when they talk about the depressive symptoms, they're born out of not knowing how to adjust to the disease progression. And so, you know, support group may not work for one, but a family meeting may work for someone else or a private Care consultation may work for another person. I, I think that's very true. Um, one of the things that that I've gotten involved in is the memory cafes, and I don't know if you're familiar with those at all, uh, Dr. Purdue or Greg, but those are, um, and I don't even like calling them support groups, I call them gatherings because they're very informal and they're for the person with memory loss and their care partner. And it's a place where, where people can get back to the core of their relationships where the disease takes second seat. And um, people just talk about how it recharges them um, and, and it fills them. And everything is safe. There's nothing to be embarrassed about. Everybody is dealing with similar things. And they're learning from one another. Um, and it's it's really... I, I brought it over from the UK about three years ago to the U.S. And um, there's probably about a hundred of them now in the country. It's it's hard to 
track because they're all a lot of them are kind of volunteer based and um you know there's no budgets we have no funding here from our government um which they which they have over there but um they really are more of a a gathering people will come and meet early for lunch or go out for dinner they swap phone numbers and um the, there's really it's almost like a, a a mini family especially when so many people fall by the wayside um with this disease and it's it's just it they're it's amazing. It, it's absolutely amazing uh, to see the, the brilliance um, within within the groups. And, and each group, um, you know, is different. We have three that all meet at the same time now, and, and each of our three groups has, has a different personality. And so we twist and we turn to to meet the needs of, of the people who attend, um, which sometimes I think can be an issue um, for some groups too, because the rules can be very, very strict, and and we just kind of ebb and flow. Um, I always say, you know, you don't bring an agenda when you meet with your friends, and so we're we're <laughs> these are, are very informal. Um, I, I, sometimes I go out of there just laughing, and my cheeks hurt, you know, for two hours afterwards <laughs> because we we've, we've had so much fun. Um, so you know, there's there's all different types of groups that can be tapped into, and and a lot of people will tap into more than one, um, you know, or they'll peek in and just see if it's a fit or not. But it it can be, um, it can be so helpful, I think, uh, to be to be part of a of a bigger core that that understands. Um, but again, I think that person has to come first, you know, within that. And um Greg, if you could if you could develop a group and maybe this maybe this maybe you're gonna say, Lori, I don't what part of this don't you get? I don't wanna be part of a group but but if you could if you could put together an ideal group that would that you feel would support you, what would that look like? Um so you're talking about support me? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, uh it I this I don't know, this answer might you know, this is just where my head is right now. I want to support others. Um, okay. There is no there is no cure today. So and and um, I I want to take what I know, and as a journalist, uplift other people. And in doing that, I'll be uplifted myself. And um, uh, it, it it for the first time in my life, I maybe become a lot less selfish. And um, I I know there's no cure. And I think like the course that my mother was on, where she could speak the way I could at this stage, there's going to come a time in two years when I'll be on my way out. But um, I have a strong faith about where I'm going. I believe in heaven. And again, I'm not pushing that on people. I'm just telling you where my head's at. Well, actually, I'm telling you not where my head's at, because that's in a bad place where my soul's at. And um, so I want to spend my time helping and uplifting others. So any anything I was involved in, and I'm happy to get involved nationally and internationally, would be to help other people to raise the visibility, to get this country and this world to shake a fist at the demon of Alzheimer's. And um, that's where I would like to spend my time. Well, I would love to, to offer you... Um an invitation to join us on Dementia Chats, um, which sure. is it's just a webinar platform. You need a you need a headset. 
uh, to be able to plug in and a video camera. And um, we can talk a little bit more offline on this. But, you know, we never know how many people are going to show up. Um, but people listen to these conversations afterwards. And we just, we don't have really an agenda. We just go in and say, you know, what do you want to talk about today? And and we just, we let it go natural. And the people who do join us um, have fascinating questions and comments. And the 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 feedback that I get from these is, you know, companies are using them for, for staff training. Um, families are using them for conversations um, to understand their own loved one because you can't always ask your own loved one the questions you want to. And so sometimes it's safer to be able to ask somebody else who's dealing with it. But the insights are pretty uh, profound. And, and every single time we do one of these, I walk away with more knowledge. And, I, and I'm I'm so thankful for those with the disease being willing to be our experts because I, for one, I'm sick and tired of peeking through the window. I just want to open the door, and 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 walk in and say what's going on, you know, instead of this this guessing. Um, let's ask the people who are living it, and and Absolutely. breathing it on a, on a daily basis. It, to me, it's just ridiculous that we haven't done more of that more often. Um, and hearing the voice of, of those diagnosed at conferences is um, so important, too. Over in the U.K., um, Norms McNamara, I'll never forget, he said they had a conference for doctors. And what they did was they had a person with dementia at every round, and then the doctors rotated. And they just got to talk with different people with dementia. And he said the feedback was phenomenal because they had no idea what it was really like you know they had the textbook and they had the research but the but the meaty conversations of reality and practicality of living with the disease um, they said that they just walked away with so much knowledge and additional compassion in terms of the disease which I, I think is very very important uh, for for everyone to uh to be able to partake in. So I'll I'll definitely get you some information on that. Um Greg, on your uh, in your book, what what can someone expect to find? Can you just kind of summarize um what people will find if they if they purchase your book? Sure. Um and we said before the the book has just been released. Probably the quickest way to get it is Amazon. Um, it's a blueprint. It's it's strategies of how to live with this disease, not die with it. As I said before, the dying part comes later. Alzheimer's, and, and this is not for me, but this is the doctors that I've talked to, can start um, five years or earlier before it's diagnosed. It can take 20 years to run a course. There, there's a lot of time there. That It's a death in slow motion. It's like having a sliver of your brain shaved every day. So the question becomes, how do you how do you deal with the day to day? And in my book, I try to describe how to deal with the day to day in 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 humor, in hope, in faith, and 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 with strategies, and also uh, to to never give up. You know, as I say in my book, in wrestling, uh, a position of lying down is a position of defeat. Don't lie down. Get up. Keep fighting. And 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 some of us can fight at different levels, but but all of us can can still at some level fight and 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 then surround yourself with support networks as we talked about before talk about it don't be afraid um 
you know, I, I, I say that it's almost like someone with autism or something like that, and, and I believe this in my heart, that that person, that, that soul, that heart of a person, whether you want to call it a heart or a soul, that, that person is real inside. They, they just have a disease that, that they're fighting through. And I tell people, I'm not stupid. I just have a disease. And, and to lift people up, and, and I've learned over the years uh, to speak and write from my heart rather than my head, because my head used to be my best friend. Now I don't see any chance for uh, with my brain to uh, for reconciliation, but I've learned to speak from the heart. And so that's what this book is all about, and it's about strategies of, of, of pressing on as long as you can. And, 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 and I, I know the, the ending of the book before I read it. But and I've asked this question before. I, I'm the first to say this, but it, it's it's very true. Hey, anyone and, and all your listeners as well who don't think you're going to die someday, please raise your right hand right now. Um, and and so there's a there's a end date certain for all of us. So it's 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 the attitude you take as you go through that tunnel, and that's what that book is about. Mm-hmm. Wonderful. Well, and again, for our audience, the book is titled On Pluto, Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's, um, written by Greg O'Brien, who is a veteran journalist who has been so kind enough to write his story for us and, and what it's what this disease is like for him with insights. And you know, I don't think there's anything more powerful than hearing from the voice of this disease. And so, again, I, I thank you so much for sharing with us. Uh, Dr. Uh, Molly Perdue, can you tell us a little bit about um, your organization um, and um, the Alzheimer's Family Support Center and um, how people can get in touch with you? Oh, absolutely. So so the Alzheimer's Family Support Center came out of the research I did in my personal experience. And as Greg was talking about maybe his resistance to going to a support group, but knowing that he needed to create some type of support network around him. And so what we're trying to do is, is that. So we want to be small enough and fluid enough that we can respond to the needs of our community. So if someone just needs to talk about what they're going to do for mom or dad, we can do that. If someone needs a family meeting, we're able to come and sit and create the family meeting. If someone needs to learn about the disease, we can provide the education. So what we're trying to do at the Alzheimer's Family Support Center is provide free counseling so people can get the help when they need it and support groups and education and all of that on Cape Cod. So we can be contacted at alzheimerscapepod.com. Uh, so that's where we're available right now, and we are also available alzheimerscapecod at Gmail, and we can be contacted that way. So um, I hope you know I, I hope that we will continue to uh, get the volume of calls that we've been getting because people people actually need information and they need to know that they're not alone, and sometimes. One telephone call can make all the difference in the world. 
Yeah, I agree with that. Definitely, definitely agree with that. Well, I thank you both so much for taking the time today. Again, you can get Greg O'Brien's book on Pluto, Inside the Mind of Alzheimer's, um, by, you can just Google it or go to onpluto.org, um, but it will be, uh, it is available on Amazon, and I think it'll be an exceptional read and one that you'll be um, glad that you purchased. And if you're in the Cape Cod area, um, check out uh, Dr. Molly Purdue's uh, Alzheimer's Family Support Center. Uh, everyone is here to help you. It's all about working together. And um, I'm just so honored that, that both of you took the time to to speak with us today. So thank you so well, much, you. Greg. And any any last words that you any last word, Greg, that you want to share with well, our audience? Yeah, I. I... I would just say, hey, don't give up. We're, we're this is this is a disease that that's going to be carried throughout a generation. This is a disease that you don't have to hide from. Uh, this is a disease that that um, we all stand together on. Just a quick another quick link. Uh, call up anyone who wants to see some films. I was in one of the films, Living with ALZ dot org. Four short films done by um, Oscar winning. Uh, uh, producers about about living with Alzheimer's. Mine uh, film is called A Place Called Pluto, but uh, and it's and it's done by the Cure Alzheimer's Fund in Boston. But living with alz dot org. A wonderful. Just another, Glad ref- you... just another reference. Just another reference, Good. and you might want to look at it yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that one I have I haven't seen. I've got I've put up I think two two of your um, videos so far that I had. Um, and that was done by the the news channel, and another one's going this week, and I think another one will go up the following week. So I'm I'm kind of spacing okay. them out so people can. So, so you might want to take a look them. at that, or your 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 uh, listeners, because it's it's these mm-hmm. are Oscar winning producers. Okay, livingwithalz.org is that what? Dot org, right? Okay. Wonderful. Yeah, we'll definitely look at that. Well, wonderful. I'm glad you glad you gave that plug. Um, Cure for Alzheimer's is a is a wonderful organization as well. Um, Dr. Purdue, any any last comments? Well, yeah, I, I would like to say that no one should try to navigate this disease alone. And the earlier you identify that you need help and you connect to an organization in your local area. There are lots of local Alzheimer's organizations. The work that you do, Lori, is really important, and and people need to either pick up that phone or get on that computer and connect. What research shows is that earlier that they connect to help, the better they will be in the long run. And that is a message that I I so want to get out to everyone, that just pick up the telephone and things will eventually uh, get a little better because you won't be alone. I think that that's very, very good advice. And, again, I thank you for being with us today. Um, For those of you who are, again, looking for an Alzheimer's Association anywhere in the world, go to Alzheimer's Disease International. There you'll not only be able to find the association closest to you, but you'll also find um, great views on the global force and what is happening out in the world uh, of dementia. Uh, the Purple Angel uh, Project, go to alzheimerspeaks.com to our About page, and you can get information for the U.S. Purple Angel. Um, we haven't even formally launched it, but the information is there. And, um, you know, become an advocate. 
you know, use it in your email, put it on your Facebook page, your Twitter. You can you can use this uh, symbol um, any way and anywhere to raise awareness. Um, it's it's being shared. So thank you so much. Um, and let's see, our next show again will be tomorrow, Monday, and. Or, um, tomorrow, which is Tuesday. Today is Monday. And HealthStar is going to be talking about adopting their new program called the Alzheimer's Whisperer. And that's that's worth listening to. Um, they're doing some fascinating work, and I, I think you'll really enjoy that conversation. So, again, thank you all for um, being part of the show today. And I look forward uh, to uh, talking with you all again. In the meantime, have a great week. Bye now. It's time to rethink, renew, and reimagine retirement. Hey, everybody. Jared Sebesta here, host of Retire Repurposed. Now, this podcast is about the non-financial parts of retirement, which many times can be even more challenging than the financial. We believe retirement is not the end, rather the beginning of what can be the most impactful, purposeful, and fulfilling season of a person's life. So don't retire. Become repurposed. To listen now, search Retire Repurpose on your favorite podcast platform, Senior Resource, or Life Audio.